There is a common thread that runs through our modern world of marvels, from the tiny mobile phone that allows us to connect to the entire world, to the incredible spacefaring rockets that allow us to leave the world behind. From the humble farmstead to the great behemoth that is the modern metropolis, energy. The need for energy permeates our entire world. How do we best harness energy? How do we make the most of our natural resources? Is the Philippines poised to take a larger role in the energy conversation? Join us as we tackle these questions and more in today's episode. This is Prime Movers, a legal podcast that covers the latest and relevant trends and insights on Philippine legal issues and topics expertly discussed and diluted down by the experienced legal team at Gordeseta, Africa, Coton, and Saavedra. Again, this is Prime Movers. For our third episode, let's welcome Gordeseta partner Christine Torres and Gordeseta counsel Julius M. Lotilia. Let's tune in as they take us through the electrifying world of energy law. Hi everyone and welcome to Prime Movers. This is Christine Torres, one of the partners in Goreseta and a member of the firm's Corporate and Technology Media and Telecommunications Group. Joining me today is a leading energy lawyer, a prime mover in the industry, Julius M. Lotilia. Julius is also our firm's energy counsel and head of the energy practice group. Julius is a respected luminary in the field of energy law. He received his Master's of Law with Specialization in Energy and Natural Resources from the Center of Commercial Law Studies of Queen Mary, University of London, as a Shivening Scholar. He has extensive experience in brownfield acquisitions and greenfield power projects from all phases of exploration, pre-development, financing, and commercial operations of all forms of renewable energy, oil and gas projects, including power generation, transmission, and distribution. Welcome to Prime Movers, Julius. Hi, Christine. Hello, everyone. Okay, Julius, let's start with the most important question. What are the major influences in shaping energy laws and policies? Well, there is a concept in the field of energy as what we know as the energy trilemma or the energy triangle which points to three major areas of consideration, namely politics, economics, and environment. Each of these three major areas influences the direction of energy law and policy. Politics would mostly refer to energy security, and this is usually the main consideration of every government. Economics would refer to the availability of financing, the infrastructure, and how to make energy accessible and affordable to people. Environment and energy are also intertwined, but on this matter, it specifically focuses on climate change issues, especially that, as we all know, the main culprits are fossil fuels. Balancing these factors of the energy trilemma is the constant struggle and aim of the entire energy sector. Hmm, energy trilemma, very interesting. How does the Philippines tackle the energy trilemma? And what is your main legal framework on energy law and the influences that created that framework? As you know, our energy law has its fundamentals enshrined in our constitution that basically adopts the Regalian Doctrine. The Regalian Doctrine dates back to Spanish laws that basically upholds the principle 
that all land and resources belong to the throne or the king. Applying in our national setting, this means that all our natural resources, including our energy resources, are owned by the state, and the state only allows participation of its citizens, and to a certain extent, foreign nationals. Hence, in the Philippines, the exploitation and development of our natural resources are limited to Filipino nationals or corporations. As you know, a Filipino corporation is one that has at least 60% ownership by Filipinos. In short, foreign investments are generally limited to 40% participation in energy development. Hmm, this seems awfully restrictive. How then can we attract foreign investments to join our energy industry? Well, there is also an exemption provided in the Constitution on foreign participation. 100% foreign participation or investment is allowed in financial and technical assistance agreements, or FTAAs, that involve highly technical projects requiring heavy capital that local talent and resources will not be capable to provide and handle. The most common will be in the area of conventional energy that will require extensive drilling and production activities like in the case of oil and gas resources. In the cases of limited participation by foreign nationals, our laws provide a lot of incentives as well to make it attractive for them to invest, such as tax holidays, cost recovery, repatriation of capital, and a number of non-fiscal incentives. There are also other legal ways to avail of these incentives by way of corporate structuring and tax strategies and planning where law firms can provide assistance. So if the state owns all the natural resources, including sources of energy, when does government participation end and private participation begin? Well, government participation will never end. And private participation will still be subject to the full control and supervision of the government, particularly by the executive branch through the Department of Energy. As we know, the Department of Energy is the main governing agency in implementing all energy policies of the government. Private participation can be in the form of joint venture or production sharing agreements, or in the case of foreigners through FTAs or what we commonly know as service contracts. The contract period is usually 25 years, including the period of exploration, development, and production, and renewable for another 25 years. As consumers, all we're basically privy to is the end product the electricity in our houses, or the gas in our cars. But how exactly does energy go from point A to point B? Generally, the service contracts provide for two major phases. One is the exploration and development stage, and the other one is the commercial and the production stage. During the exploration and development, most of the risks are borne by the private sector. This is where they complete all their studies, planning and preparation, in some cases, drilling activities, installation and construction of the major components of the power plant, or the full completion of the asset. Production of the energy resources may be for different purposes, like transport, manufacturing, and most commonly, as fuel source to power plants to produce electricity. In the case of electricity production, there are different aspects, such as generation, transmission, and distribution. Production of energy resources is akin to power generation, but the rates at this point are not regulated by government. It is only when the energy or electricity is transmitted and distributed to the consumers 
that the government intervenes by regulating the rates and prices of electricity through the Energy Regulatory Commission. I know there's a lot of expertise out there in the international community about renewable energy, but is there also a limitation to foreign participation with regard to renewables? Most renewable sources, namely wind, solar, hydro, tidal energy, are reserved to Filipinos or limited to 40% foreign participation. This is provided in the Renewable Energy Act of 2008. However, there is also an exception, like in the case of geothermal energy, which may allow 100% foreign participation, as geothermal sources is also considered as a mineral resource which requires highly technical expertise in the case of it drilling and production, which is very similar to upstream oil and gas and may fall under the exception of the Financial and Technical Assistance Agreements, or FTAAs. Although the executive branch has the task of implementing all these energy projects, Congress has oversight powers over these FTAAs. Hmm, okay, now let's move on to government policy. What exactly are the major influences that shape energy law in the Philippines, Julius? Similar to most governments, our energy governance is mainly focused on supply security. We are focused on making sure that there are no major blackouts, nor rotating brownouts, and that we have enough oil and gas supplies for our daily living. We are highly dependent on imported fuel, oil and coal, and we have not produced much from our resources given that we are rich in terms of natural resources and we have a lot of potential for development. However, our energy security principle is focused on short-term planning, which results mostly in importation rather than a long-term one, which is harnessing and developing our own resources that takes years and some even decades to develop. Of course, energy law isn't contained in a vacuum, right? So are there any economic, environmental, or other factors that have to be considered? In the aspect of economics, we have not solved the issue of making the prices of our petroleum commodity and electricity affordable to people. Then, legislation and policymaking should focus on this aspect to make some fundamental changes. The Electric Power Industry Reform Act of 2001, or EPIRA, has been there for more than two decades with a goal of reducing our energy prices. Yet, the effect has been opposite. We may need to further review the regulatory aspects of electricity, particularly on rate making, which is the main basis for our electricity prices. Well, in recent years, Congress legislated a law called the Mura Corriente Act of 2009, which provided subsidy in the electricity bills, yet it was hardly felt. Again, that was a short-term solution to a long-term energy problem. On the aspect of environment, with our participation in the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, our policy direction was focused on renewable energy. Our commitment in the Paris Agreement, based on our nationally determined contribution, is a reduction of 75% greenhouse gas emissions which implies that reduction of fossil fuel-based power plants and a major shift to look for more renewable and clean energy resources will be the new goal. Speaking of environment, 
Is there any government law or agency or body in the Philippines that specifically addresses climate change? Are we behind in this climate change talks? Oh no, we have been very active in the international arena on climate change talks, being one of the most vulnerable countries in the Pacific, and our efforts have been recognized internationally. We have a climate change commission, which is under the executive branch, but is separate from the Department of Energy. Our Department of Environment and Natural Resources is another separate department. Hence, the environmental factors that influence energy law and policy needs to be directed from the top, considering that there are different bodies that implement and formulate the policies. In some countries, these matters are just under one department or entity. He also mentioned the Department of Energy and the Energy Regulatory Commission, right? Why is it structured in that way, where the policy is under one department while the other, the regulatory side, is under ERC, an independent regulatory body? The simple answer to that in separating policy and regulation is to provide further checks and balances in the energy governance. However, these two agencies must clearly know their distinct functions to avoid any conflict while at the same time cooperate with each other. On another note, What are some things that we cannot innovate on energy because of the current constitutional framework? And conversely, what is favorable in this kind of setup? Well, I think the limitations on foreign ownership remains to be the main barrier to entry. Opening more areas to foreign investments may vitalize this industry, but of course, all safeguards for abuse must be put in place. Also, there are still some red tape and the bureaucratic process in government shuns away investors. They don't want to gamble on their capital. So streamlining all these processes will play a big role. Hmm. So is there a type of renewable energy that is of note in the Philippines? Oh, we have been the world's second largest producer of geothermal energy since the 80s. The largest portfolio of geothermal steam fields were previously owned and run by the government before it was privatized. I think major funding and focus was given to research and development and the support to the proponent given that it was previously run and owned by the government. In fact, geothermal energy comprises about 14% of our, of our total energy mix and it dominates the mix among all other renewable sources. And again, Geothermal energy is the only renewable source that allows 100% foreign ownership. If that's the case, how do we best transition from conventional to clean and renewable energy? And as a follow-up question, do we have to totally abandon conventional energy and how do we incentivize such a transition? Well, as a developing country, I don't think we can totally abandon conventional energy. However, the global direction is to transition to renewable energy, but transitioning from conventional to renewables would entail a lot of costs and financial capital, particularly in converting or retiring fossil fuel power plants. We will be highly dependent on the financial support from the global community if we talk about this transition, especially that our national debt has ballooned to about 11.73 trillion pesos or $214 trillion. In the meantime, harnessing our local resources to limit reliance on imported resources will be the key. We still rely a lot on imported fuel to run our power plants. After Malampaya, which will soon be depleted, we have not made any other major discovery 
from our oil and gas fields. I think there are many more malampayas out there that are waiting to be discovered, which will help limit our importation and reliance on imported fuel. What for me is important is to strike a balance in our energy mix. Our diverse resources can support this mix, except for geothermal energy, which is baseload. Most other renewable sources are intermittent and is not as reliable as the conventional ones. Hence, the environmental considerations have to be balanced with security and reliability issues as well. We know that our current administration is still in the infancy with a lot of government still currently in flux. But how do you assess the new admin in terms of its energy policies? Well, in the first State of the Nation address of President Ferdinand Marcos Jr., he laid down his priority plans in the energy sector for reliable and cheap supply, while at the same time promoting renewable energy where he particularly mentioned solar energy. If I recall in his speech, the president emphasized that renewable energy is at the top of the climate agenda to avert the risks we face as a vulnerable country. He also made mention that as an interim solution, he wants to give full support to the national gas industry, which means that he does not want to abandon conventional sources. But in fact, he was asking Congress to pass an an enabling legislation for the natural gas industry, including the midstream sector. Well, this will be exciting times for the liquefied natural gas or LNG sector that has not seen its breakthrough in the country for the longest time. The president also mentioned nuclear power and asking the government to re-examine the policy in building these nuclear plants. The mention of these three major energy sources, namely renewables, natural gas, and nuclear power, shows that the president clearly understands the climate change issue. Because the common demand denominator of these three is clean energy with low to zero carbon emissions. So I think that in terms of priority and preference, first will be renewables, second will be natural gas, and third will be nuclear power. All right. So in his sauna, the president curiously did not mention anything about coal or diesel-fired plants. Are they a thing of the past? What's in store for this sector? Again, the president seems to be well-versed with climate change issues. In fact, he emphasized intergenerational responsibility in protecting and preserving the environment and the planet for the future generation. I think with this deep understanding and concern, we may eventually be moving towards an energy transition and start the process of retiring old coal and diesel plants. After all, the past administration of President Duterte has already issued the moratorium on the building of new coal-fired power plants, and I think this new administration will just maintain the policy. The energy transition policy will be a daunting task as it will require global support and will heavily rely on financing. I recall the president also mentioned nuclear power in his sauna. Does that mean that he wants to revive the Bataan nuclear power plant and will it actually solve our energy problems? And as a follow-up question, do we have a regulatory and legal framework for nuclear energy? 
Well, early this year, the previous administration made it a policy to include nuclear energy as part of the energy framework for the country. This was actually a bold step towards a direction that has not been seen since the post-Marshall era, but I think we may need still some legislation to provide the structure to govern and regulate nuclear reactors and wastes. As to the BNPP, it appears that the president does not seem to be interested in reviving the outdated plant, but as he never mentioned that in his sauna, but instead he stated that the need that there, there was there is a need to examine the strategy in building nuclear plants in the country. Given the outdated technology of the Bataan nuclear power plant, there will be investor and financing issues, I think, to convert the BNPP to current industry standards, including safety standards. What I recall in the speech of the president on nuclear power, he made mention on the small modular reactors, which also a lot of technical experts believe to be the future for nuclear power. Small nuclear reactors have capacities of about 300 megawatts or lesser. But, you know, what remains to be seen is the future legislation on how we're going to adapt and make this attractive to investors. Okay, so were there any other matters that were given emphasis by the president that you think will be the cornerstone of the energy policy during his term? I remember that the president also made mention for a review and amendment to the EPIRA, which may mean that EPIRA did not really attain its purpose as we still have one of the most expensive electricity in Asia. So I think we have to expect that there may be a lot of reforms in the power industry. I recall that the president made mention also of investments and private-public partnership and participation in the different areas of his governance. So I think investor confidence in the energy sector may now be at its highest. So in sum, I think the focus in the next six years will be on clean energy sources that are affordable and reliable, among many other things. Okay, so as a final question, what do you think are the drivers that will shape the future of our energy laws and policies? Well, I think it will all boil down to three major areas. One, the availability of financing for power projects. Number two, the advances in technology, particularly in terms of efficiency and cost. And lastly, I think the preferences and acceptability of our people. I think government's policy will be mainly influenced by all this, regardless of change in leadership. Thank you so much for your time, Julius. Oh, thank you also, Christine. It was a pleasure talking to you. And that is it for our third episode of Prime Movers. We hope you enjoyed and learned a lot from our discussion. Make sure to catch it and see you in our next podcast session.